You are listening to a sermon from Linworth Road Church. For more information about Linworth Road Church, please visit www.linworthroadchurch.com. With the Memorial Day coming up, I hope you're looking forward to some cookouts and family gatherings tomorrow. Speaking of family, I would like to point out, they don't know I'm going to do this, so I'm going to embarrass them a little bit, but Dan and Debbie Helwig, would you guys raise your hands, please? Dan and Debbie have been a part of our church for uh, 22 years, and they have served, they have given, they have loved, they have laid down their lives, they have been a vital part of our body, and uh, this is their last Sunday here before moving to the Sunshine State, which none of us resent, (laughs) but um, we love you guys, Dan and Debbie, we really appreciate all you've done to be a part of this body, we are going to really miss you. And hope to see you back here, certainly. But uh, when you get a chance today, be sure to say hello and thank you and uh, express, uh, again, the heart that we have for the Hellwig. So anyway, we really appreciate, appreciate them. Okay. So I read a short article this week about liminal thinking. Liminal thinking is the art of creating change by understanding shaping and reframing beliefs. For example, the article goes on to describe it. You see a movie based on a book, and you see the actors and characters in the movie, and then you go back and try to read the book. It's very hard to imagine those characters in a way that you would if you had not seen the movie. Now, when you read a book after seeing a movie, you tend to imagine the characters as the actors who played the role in the movie. I think this is just about a thing about the human condition. Once something has been defined for you, or once you've defined something for yourself, then you will rarely question that. Is that not true? I think it is. My wife and I have been watching uh, and enjoying uh, Les Mis uh, on PBS, the last six Sunday nights, a six-week rendering of the famous book, and musical by Victor Hugo. We've really enjoyed it. And as I read this article on liminal thinking, I said, that's exactly what happened to us. The rendering of Javert in this uh, PBS episode is unlike the rendering in both the book, which I have read, and the musical. And I told my wife, I said, they have got Javert all wrong. Javert has a far more religious outlook on life than what the, um, what the, the, the PBS rendering featured. And um, now, in this case, the religion is not good. It's actually unhealthy. It's destructive. But uh, now, of course, in this case, I am right because I've read the book. But um, I had to admit to my wife, she said, well, do you really remember what the book says? Or is it more the musical that's in your mind? I had to admit, well... Yeah, it's more than musical. It's in my mind, so maybe I'm not right. But the point about liminal thinking, I think, is really apropos for us to think about definitions that are created in our minds that we no longer then, we sort of put that in a box and no longer question it. Well, without a doubt, if I understand this correctly, Jesus was a liminal thinker. He was a change agent 
at the level of belief. Today we're going to look at four different stories in the life of Jesus. Now they each contain rich meaning. They could each be a separate message, but they also contain a common thread. So what I'm going to do is read each one, make a few comments, and then together we'll take a bird's eye view of the four passages in order to find the common thread. So will you pray with me as we start? Father, uh, we come to you here as really needy in our own lives. Some of us are aware of that need. Some of us are not aware. But we all have needs, Father, that only you can meet. And we pray that our hearts will be open today to receive whatever you want to say, whatever resources you want to direct to our lives. They are gifts, and we want to be open and humble to receive them. We thank you for this beginning of summer. We thank you for Memorial Day, Father, and we thank you for, indeed, for those that, in various ways, men and women that gave their lives for us, that we can enjoy today what we enjoy. Father, thank you for Jesus who gave his life for us as well. And now we pray that you would guide us and lead us You'd make us lie down in green pastures. You'd lead us beside quiet waters. Father, you would restore our souls. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you can open your Bibles to page 861. And I'm going to begin with this first story at Luke 5, verse 27. Story number one. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink? with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. A little background here will help us understand the significance of this story. The coins that Levi collected bore the image of Caesar. And Caesar's claim to deity made him a rival of Jehovah, of God, and thus the Romans an enemy of the Jews. And thus any agent of Caesar's IRS was hated. And because Levi was a fellow Jew, he was also a traitor. And tax collectors were oppressive. Just as today, if something moved, it was taxed. Tax upon imports and exports, everything bought and sold, bridge money, road money, town dues, axles, wheels, etc., etc. Now there was a class of tax collectors, and Levi was, appears to be the one that is a customs house official. When Mark tells us the same account, 
He adds that Levi's booth was by the Sea of Galilee. That's our hint. Here is the landing place for many ships and those who do business in Capernaum. And there Levi, also called Matthew, could monitor shipping. And he could levy taxes on imports and exports. We can imagine him sitting in his booth, listening to Jesus on many occasions as he taught on the seashore at the side of the Sea of Galilee. So given Levi's willingness to leave his career and everything behind to follow Jesus, he must have been thinking about changing his life. He must have been. But according to the rabbis, repentance or change in this era was like a maze. It was an elaborate system of rules meant to prove that one had truly mended his ways. It was virtually impossible. As Levi was the worst kind of tax collector, restoration was practically outside of his reach. You know, hopelessness can harden a person's heart. A system weighed down with excessive rules can repel a man. And perhaps that's what happened to Levi until, until he heard the voice of Jesus. Until he saw him close up and saw his authenticity and saw his gentle way and saw the manner in which he interacted with others. There was something fresh there was something alive in Jesus, something different than all he had ever known from the religious and the pious. Alfred Edershein, in his classic book, Jesus the Messiah, wrote this. There was that about Jesus that not only aroused the conscience, but drew the heart, compelling, not repelling. What he said opened a new world. You see, every religion deals with sinners and forgiveness, right? And all other religions have no welcome for the sinner until they stop being a sinner. They demand change first, then offer acceptance from God. Christ turned that upside down. He first welcomes, and then He makes the change from within. Jesus calls Levi to himself first. Now, he will not leave Levi the same man. But coming to him is the beginning of repentance. Now, here is a prime example of one of Luke's big ideas that the gospel is for everyone, and in Levi's case, he will stretch that to the outer limit. Traitor, thief, hack, tool, anti-patriot comes to Jesus. He's welcomed by Jesus. The Pharisees find no joy in this. The Pharisees shake their heads in disgust as surely Jesus' association with these sinners will defile him. Let's look at the second story. That's story number one. The calling of Levi and the party that they have. The second story. Look down at verse 33. 
And they said to him, the Pharisees said to him, the disciples of John, they fast often and they offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding feast fast? Wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So not only does Jesus cook out with questionable characters, but his disciples don't fast. As a matter of fact, they feast. They're foodies. They enjoy it. I mean, even John's followers know that they should fast and not have such an enjoyable time. Now again, to provide a little context here, the Old Testament law required fasting for a Jew only on the Day of Atonement. So this was not a matter of obedience to the law. The Pharisees did regularly fast, but it was over and above what the law required. John's disciples followed suit. But Jesus took a surprising tack. You see, one of the purposes of fasting was to mourn a loss, the absence of a loved one. And what's brought out in Matthew's Gospel is this is certainly the type of fasting that Jesus is thinking about. Indeed, look at the context itself. This is why he says, why should they fast? I am right here in their midst. In the future, I will be taken away, and then they will fast on that day. The point in all of this, the point is, is that all of the religious activity of the Pharisees, even the absence of food, did not prepare them for this historic and epic moment. They are blind to the larger-than-life presence of their Savior right in the midst of them. Turn to the third story. We're going to skip a few verses and look at chapter 6, verse 1. So we did the first story, the call of Levi and the party. We did the second story, the dispute about fasting. And now there's going to be two stories around the same dispute. Look at Luke 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, Jesus, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What does this mean? Now, the first thing to recognize here, it's obvious, the Pharisees have deputized a team to keep their eyes on Jesus, looking for some weakness, right? These are the private eyes hanging out all night in their car by the curb to catch a glimpse of something out of order. These are the journalists hiding in the bushes all night, hoping to unearth something scandalous. Now, nothing was more important to the rabbis than the Sabbath. In nothing were they more exacting, more minute, more serious. 
Again, Edershein wrote this, that the Mishnah, and the Mishnah was a, a, a written collection of the oral tradition of the Jews. The Mishnah includes Sabbath desecration among those most heinous crimes for which a man was to be stoned. So their goal was to make Sabbath absolutely restful without anything that could be construed as work being done and thus to make it a delight. Now that might sound good to some of you. But in their zeal, they turned it into a nightmare of burdensome rules and regulations. Now as I understand it, there were 39 specific injunctions against work on the Sabbath. And guess what? One of them was picking grain. So Jesus, not surprised by their question, is up for it. And he reminds them of a familiar story, one which they knew. From the Old Testament in 1 Samuel 21, Jesus reminds them that when David and his men were hungry, they went into the temple and they ate this holy sacred bread that was reserved only for the priest. Indeed, the priest gave it to him, even though this was specifically legislated against in the book of Leviticus. So what's up with that? Well, scholars float a few theories out there, but the one that makes the most sense to me and the one that I believe is the most consistent is that meeting their need for food invoked a higher and more significant law at work. Essentially, human need. Human need superseded the restriction on the holy bread. And so with that precedent, Jesus defends the disciples against these scrupulous enforcers. The disciples, too, were hungry and in need. They, too, were serving God as David was. Now, when Mark finishes this story, he includes these words that the Sabbath was made for people. Again, this is in Mark's account. The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. Okay? Did I get that right? I got it right. Sabbath is a gift to us. And here Jesus affirms the Sabbath. But at the same time, He interprets it in a fresh way that deeply angers and offends the Pharisees. He dismantles their petty legalism and their rule-driven thinking. And He seeks to return the Sabbath to its true purpose as a gift and as a delight to human beings. Okay? Let's look at the fourth story. That's the third one. Let's look at the fourth one. Look down at, again, verse, I think we're at verse 6. On another Sabbath, so it's another day, Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And as he did so, his hand was restored. But they 
were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do with Jesus. Now the media is all over this one, aren't they? The media is all over it. Does it seem that Luke is hinting to us that this was staged by the Pharisees in order to trap Jesus? If that's the case, the man with the withered hand is nothing more than a tool in their scheme. In their twisted system, healing constituted a work on the Sabbath. Even wiping a wound was forbidden. Friends, it wasn't that the Pharisees weren't logical. They were very logical. Actually, their logic was inescapable. Surely, if one thing related to another, and that is related to something else, then multiple facets are all simultaneously connected. Confused yet? Thus, our lawmaking must cover every possible cause and outcome. All of it was very logical, tight as a drum. How can you argue against that? The problem was their circle was way too small. Their circle of reality was too small. It did not include love and mercy and flexibility and human need. So Jesus shatters their tightly drawn circle by one insanely simple question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? I am taking a class right now online class, on professional coaching. Not sports coaching, but life and people and business coaching, relationship coaching. And part of the class is we are taught to never ask open-ended questions. I'm sorry, closed-ended questions. (laughs) We're taught how to ask good open-ended questions. It's obvious Jesus did not take that class. We're trained not to ask obvious rhetorical or yes-no questions. But that's exactly what this is. This is a closed-ended question. And the Pharisees' system of logic collapses under its weight. There is no middle, middle ground. Jesus leaves no escape. To not do good is to do evil. Jesus asks the question, And then he pauses, his piercing eyes circling the room, going from face to face. One wonders how long this disturbing pause took. He waits for an answer, and none comes. Mark adds to this account that Jesus is angry and he is deeply distressed. All the while, this vulnerable man likely shaken from becoming the center of attention, is still standing in front of everyone. Those of you who bear a handicap or know someone with a handicap know how being in public is the exact thing that you don't want to do. You don't want to ever be the center of attention. And yet Jesus has this man at the center of attention and he looks at him and tells him to raise his hand. The man believes Jesus and raises his wasted hand. His curled fingers break from their mold and stretch out. The muscles, sinews, and tendons take new shape. His bent wrists 
straightens. What a remarkable moment. What wonder this congregation must have felt. Except for the opponents of Jesus who cannot find any joy for this man. Rather, they are defeated, their hearts are hardened, and they go find a way to get rid of Jesus. Four stories. Four stories. Levi's salvation, the question about fasting, and two Sabbath blow-ups. What is the common thread to these stories? How are they connected? Well, it's quite obvious. They're all connected by the opposition to Jesus by the religious leaders Opposition that is intensifying. Why? He's caring. He's loving. He's forgiving. He's teaching. He's healing. Well, I think the answer to our question is right smack in the middle of these passages. In the section that we skipped over, look at verse 38. Because here Jesus tells a parable, and I think this is the answer. Verse 38. He says, No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new and the, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good. Two everyday pictures showing you can't mix old with new. If you try, you lose both. What is Jesus' point? He is saying in so many words that I did not merely come to reform the old. I am doing something totally new. A new day has dawned. Now, the foundation of Jesus' teaching was connected to the Old Testament. There are many uh, connections there. But he's bringing to the world something so new that it threatens to turn the world upside down. He has questioned the unquestionable. <laughs> this is liminal thinking. This is, why, this is why his life and his teaching created such fierce conflict. Jesus is bringing change. He brings change. What do they do? Look at the end of that passage. The end of the text. End of that parable. They love the old. He brings change. They love the old. Secondly, He welcomes sinners. He welcomes them. They despise them. Thirdly, He grasps the law's true meaning. For them, they prefer their man-made traditions and arbitrary demands. And finally, He uses God's truth to set people free. They use human rules to oppress others. Jesus is fighting something that has become systemic. A set of rules that has become the norm. You know, there is a certain comfort, isn't there? There is a certain comfort in the way things have always been. It's predictable. You know what to expect and surprises are kept to a limit. But these stories help us understand why Jesus was rejected by those who knew the Bible best. So let's pivot now to you and to me. 
How does this all ricochet into the future, into 2019? Are we content just to idly sit there and not read ourselves into the story and just condemn the Pharisees? Or will we have the courage to read ourselves into this story? Is it possible that I can become complacent? Is it possible we can become so comfortable in the way things have always been that we too will miss Jesus? Do I still give Jesus permission to step into my life and turn old things, rotted things, and twisted things upside down? You might ask yourselves the question, how can I know if my faith is stagnant, perhaps even rotting? Well, the stories right here shed light on it. The Pharisees demonstrate a faith that is twisted. It's rotting. For example, when we create rules, spiritual rules, that conveniently excuse us from meeting the needs of others. When we demand sinners to completely change and clean up their lives first before welcoming them. When we are who are in charge, when we who are the boss, the parent, the coach, the teacher, when we replace legitimate authority with controlling others, because I can't see past my own fears and my own needs. When rules-oriented thinking has made me blind to seeing people. When people hurt, what I think first and foremost is about the rules they did not keep. You see, to grow means we are incorporating new ways of thinking, new habits, new relationships into our life. It means breaking out of patterns that leave us alone and self-centered and focused on our own needs. But how? How? How can I do this? Please make this practical for me. And I wrestled with this again on where to go. But again, I think the stories and the text itself has the answer. The power for change comes not from reading my Bible. The power for change comes in how I read this book. In how I read it. That's what's so intriguing about the Pharisees. They read their Bible. They memorized their Bible. But it did not uproot their pride, prejudice, and preconceptions. Ironically, just the opposite happened. They read their Bible through a lens that added fuel to their pride, prejudice, and preconceptions. They came to the Bible with a certain bias and discovered, aha, it confirms everything I thought. The same thing can happen to you and to me. You see, this is God's Word. And it is altogether perfect and trustworthy. It's powerful. Because it reveals God to us. It is infallible. It has an intended meaning. You and me don't get, up to, don't get to make whatever meaning from it that we want. It's not up for grabs. But His Word is poured through an imperfect, fallible filter. Friends, that's you and me. And without His Spirit aiding us, 
we read it through our own bias, through our own pride, our own prejudice, our own preconceptions. In pride, when I read, what I hear is that the Bible is all about me. (laughs) It's all about me and my needs and my desires. In my prejudice, when I read, what I hear is the Bible is all about my tribe, my family. The plans and the purposes of God are all about and all centered in my tribe. Or if I read it in my own preconceptions, I hear what the Bible says and I say, ah, I see the Bible confirms my plans and my desires. My plans and my desires and my dreams are the same as God's and therefore God's going to bless me. Pride. Self-centeredness. Prejudice. My tribe only. Preconceptions. How my life will work. Without the aid of the Holy Spirit, that's how we come to the Bible in reading it. Something has to happen. Has this happened through history? Well, think about it. How could meaningful Christians ever come up with the belief that the Bible affirmed slavery in the days of the southern, of the, in the south, in the southern United States? How could they ever come up with that? And believe me, they had an inescapable logic from the Bible. How can meaningful Christians ever come up with the belief that the Bible affirms various aspects of sexual immorality, various forms of sexual immorality? How could meaningful Christians ever come up with the belief that the blessing of God means fulfilling the American dream and becoming incredibly wealthy? That crazy wealth is the birthright of every true believer and have an inescapable logic about it. How could meaningful Christians ever come up with the belief that the Bible says nothing about our relationship with the poor, with the vulnerable, with the unborn? How can Christians do that? It's because of our filter, pride, prejudice, preconceptions. If we read the Bible like this, without the aid of the Holy Spirit, it has no power to change us because it can never confront us. It never has a chance to uproot our pride, prejudice, and preconceptions. If we are self-sufficient, if we think we've got it pretty much together, then there is no hunger or expectation for God to lead me, change me, correct me, counsel me. What this means is that we cannot read the Bible in a purely natural way. It has impact on us only when we read it with faith, combined with faith. Read Hebrews 4, verse 2 on that. Faith that God exists. Faith that I'm alive by and for and through Him. And that I have a desperate need for Him. Faith that God is personal and that He has the power to speak to my life and my world. If we come to the Scriptures hungry, desperate to be more like Jesus, we will walk away satisfied. But if we come to the Bible rich and self-sufficient, I have all I need, we will be sent away empty-handed. Remember Mary's song back in Luke 1, verse 53? Mary sang this song that He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. Or the words of Jesus 
in the Beatitudes, blessed are those, happy, fulfilled are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Personally, I have a long way to go in this, particularly in uprooting some of the pride and the prejudices and preconceptions that I carry into the Bible. For me, I engage the Bible most days in the morning and in the evening. That is a rhythm that works for me. Every follower of Jesus needs to find a rhythm that works for them in reading the Bible. I don't read it only for the purposes of teaching. I read it because I love it. And I read it because I desperately need it. I say that to mean that my rhythm is not related to being a pastor. I hope that I would do the same if I were not. I don't believe the amount of time in Bible reading is as important as your approach, your humble approach and believing approach to reading it and also finding consistency in your rhythm. The Bible is not an end in itself, but it connects you to God. For me, the Bible powerfully resets my personal identity as a son of God. And it connects me vitally to others. It helps me see others. It helps me see people. Isn't that really what we found through the stories is that the Pharisees just couldn't see people. When I connect with God, He connects me to Himself, connects me with my own self and self-knowledge and self-understanding, and He connects me vitally to others. It helps me see others in multiple dimensions. I can see people, for example, not as stick figures. Let's go ahead and throw that up there. Thank you. Isn't that great? Look at this good, good old stick figure. This is how we tend to look as people, as a blank stick figure on a blank canvas. A lonely stick figure on a black cave. No emotion, no expression. When we are filled with ourselves, when we are filled with our own needs, even if we are religious people, we find that we cannot ever look, understand, or discern the needs of others because the only needs we think of are our own. And it makes us unable to see people. I was trying to figure out how to explain this, but when God comes into our life and vitally connects us to others, we see people from multiple dimensions. In other words, we see them as if they are the canvas or a background behind them. We see them in relief in artistic terms, so to speak. We recognize that there's a whole background and understanding that have shaped and made who this person is. Let's look at the second figure. See here, you begin to see a little differently. We begin to see emotion and expression, something of character. We see a little more richly. And finally, the third figure, if we're continuing to see people in multiple dimensions, now I recognize that, for example, this person uh, that I'm looking at is not only an individual, but they may be a mother or a son. They may be a grandfather or a granddaughter. I begin to see them in multiple dimensions for who they are as a person. Indeed, as we enter into relationships, it opens up the possibility of dreams and hopes. But as we open up the possibility of dreams and hopes, we also open up the possibility of loss and grief and mourning. 
We pay attention to this as, we, as God helps us to connect with others. People, have, people are always somewhere in a story. They've been shaped by various forces. Uh, people begin their journey differently. People begin their journey differently with various strengths or deficiencies. And if you just see people as a blank slate, if you don't recognize the journey they've been on, how they started in life, you're going to tend to be more of a rule-oriented person. When something goes wrong in our life, you're going to first think, oh, what rule did you break? Rather than seeing the whole of people, seeing people as complex with strengths and weaknesses, interacting sometimes in mysterious ways. You see, when we see clearly people, then we can love effectively. We can love effectively. I thought the Bible turned people into haters. I thought religion was the root of hate and discord in the world. At least that's what I've heard. Have you heard that? And undeniably, religion, the religion of the Pharisees, can be destructive. But not the religion and the relationship that Christ brought. This has not been my experience. My life has been filled with seeing the Bible turn people into great lovers. <laughs> the Bible, if we give it entrance into our lives, will move us from being self-loving to self-giving. Self-giving is the foundation of every good character quality. The Bible counsels me, it confronts me, it challenges me, it changes me. The Bible brings me to a place of humility and all before a powerful majestic, beautiful, splendid, glorious God. And that's when I see my need. So, what is your relationship with the Bible this morning? This is a picture, by the way, from the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., a state-of-the-art new museum. I highly recommend it. And I want to ask this morning, what is your relationship? All of you who are believers have a relationship to the Bible. Has it uprooted your pride, prejudice, and preconceptions? So we all have a relationship with the Scriptures, even if it's not so great at the moment. Let me give you five possible relational descriptors of where you are. This is not meant to shame you. This is not meant to um, bring unhealthy comparisons. This is simply meant to help you do a health, uh, simply meant to give you a way of assessing, self-assessing your relationship to the Scriptures. Here's the first one. Some of you this morning, maybe your relationship can be described as distant. I like sermons. I like life group. But I don't read the Bible for myself. I really don't understand the Scriptures. You're distant from them. Secondly, some of you may have a cordial relationship with the Bible. That would be the word that describes your relationship. I read the Bible occasionally. I respect the Scriptures. But I don't necessarily enjoy them. You have a cordial relationship. Thirdly, some of you may have an on-again, off-again relationship. I go through seasons where I read the Scriptures consistently and benefit deeply. Then I have equally long seasons of neglect when I rarely open the Bible. Fourthly, some of you have a complicated relationship with the Bible. 
I read the Bible every day or most days, but my experience is typically dry and not rewarding. And then fifthly, some of you have a relationship that can be described as hungry. You read the Bible most days because you know you cannot live without them. You love them. And they connect you to God regularly in meaningful ways. My question to you this morning is just where are you? Which relationship describes how you relate to the Bible? And what is the Holy Spirit saying to you in this moment in how you can move towards becoming hungry? Now imagine this church with 300 people hungry for God and His words. Holy Spirit would set this place on fire. Our impact on our community and our our seeking friends would grow. Our love for one another and those seeking friends would accelerate exponentially. And How do you get there? You get there by recognizing that each one of us naturally drifts towards self-reliance, but the truth is you need God in your life every day. You cannot love without Him. You cannot grow without Him. You have no hope without Him. David wrote in Psalm 26, I've been mindful, I'm mindful of His unfailing love always. You need God every day in your life. To close this morning, I'd like us to cycle back, if we could, to the very first story. I think this is the best way to end because maybe you feel like I'm a sinner. (laughs) Maybe you feel like I've failed. Maybe you feel like I've got so long to go. Maybe you feel like my life is not together. Maybe you feel like, can I even begin this journey? So because of that, let's go back to the very first story. Levi left everything to follow Jesus. The fisherman, Peter, could have returned to his work if things didn't work out. As a matter of fact, he tried to do that. I don't think that was an option for Levi. When he left, it was a complete, complete abandonment. Imagine after longing for change for likely a long time, you've heard Jesus speak by the seashore, you've, you've heard His words, you've seen how He interacted with people, then Jesus comes into your workplace. Imagine that. He comes into your workplace and one-on-one, He looks you in the eye and He says, follow me. Edershine writes this about Levi's response. He says, When Jesus said, follow me to Levi, the past and all of the failure and all of the betrayal and all of the hatred and oppression all seemed swallowed up in the present heaven of bliss. Levi said not a word, for his soul was in speechless surprise of unexpected love and grace. But he rose up, he left the custom house, and followed Jesus. That was a gain that day, not for Levi alone, but for all the poor and needy in Israel, and yes, of all sinners among men to whom the door of heaven was now opened. Let's pray. Father, as we conclude this morning, as we sing in response to the 
what we've heard as we've encountered you, Jesus, through their stories. As we've encountered you, lead us now to respond. Jesus, I pray you'd reach out to that person who has never been connected to you, who has never felt they could come to you, who always felt that there was a, a, a maze of things they had to do to prove that they were changed. May they hear your voice today saying, follow me, follow me, and I will make the change from within you. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to measure up. You don't have to grow up. You don't have to mature for you to come to me. Come to me today. Follow me. And I will begin to help rework your life. Father, for those of us as well who are already related and connected to you, who have who find ourselves in a cordial or distant or complicated or on-again, off-again relationship with the Scriptures. Father, may we listen to the voice of your Holy Spirit and find that way to again become hungry. Hungry. Developing a daily rhythm to bring your Word into our hearts through power. With its power to change and your power to speak. Lead us now in our offering. Lead us now in our song and response. May we worship you. May the King be adored in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.